We're going to be in Mark 13. I'm going to read just four verses, verses 1 through 4. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is the word of God. You can be seated. In this message, we're going to be talking about the destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple. We're beginning this section of scripture that's been given the name, the Olivet Discourse. Because this conversation was held while Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, looking upon Jerusalem and the temple area. It's interesting that both Mark and Luke mentioned the widow's offering, like we talked about last week, mentioned the widow's offering right before the Olivet Discourse. Why is that, interest? Why is that interesting? Well, I say it's interesting because mainly it's, it's here that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, the offering box that the widow and the others placed their offerings into was for what? The building up of the temple. It was for the repair and the upkeep of the temple. However, Jesus follows this by foretelling the destruction of the temple, focusing not on its upkeep, but on its downfall. R.C. Sproul says about this entire chapter... He says, this text represents the most amazing prediction of future events that we find in the New Testament. If there's any text that should prove the divine claims of Jesus, it is this text. He predicts without any doubt the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple years before that event came to pass. This is predictive prophecy of the highest magnitude, he says. If I had gone on reading the rest of this chapter you would have seen that Jesus gives all these predictions, which we're going to be looking at in weeks to come. But all these predictions that are going to happen before the temple is destroyed. He talks about it will be destroyed and more. Now, because of such a clear and accurate prediction of the future concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which came to pass in the year 70 A.D., you would think that this text alone, just this text, would be enough to validate and substantiate Jesus' words beyond any doubt. So why, why don't they? Why doesn't it? Well, it's because of these same predictive accounts that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the way. Matthew 24, here in Mark 13. Luke 21, those chapters are the ones that record this same Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple. But what they also talk about is Jesus couples his prediction of the temple's destruction with the prophecy of his second coming. He couples them together. If you've read these chapters at all, even just a quick reading, you'll see 
that he does that. He says, the temple will be destroyed, and then this is what's going to happen at my second coming, then as well. He couples them together. Hmm. Well, when the disciples questioned Jesus about the temple being destroyed, they also couple their question like this. This is Matthew 24, 3. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? When is the temple destroyed and what's the sign of your coming? At the end of the age. And Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He says that at the end when prophesying the temple's destruction and his coming. This generation, he says. And for the Jews, the generation was roughly 40 years. You may have heard of a gentleman named Bertrand Russell. He was a famous academic from the last century, known for his work in the areas of philosophy, mathematics, logic. Well, he was a self-proclaimed atheist, known by all to be that, Especially because he wrote a book titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. But he wasn't just not a Christian, he was, he was an atheist too. And he cites in that book that this text, this Olivet Discourse, is one of the main reasons why he was not a Christian. Because Bertrand Russell noted that Jesus said he would return within one generation of the temple's destruction... And then he also took note that Jesus had not returned yet. And so Jesus was obviously wrong, according to his understanding. Well, I'll be honest with you in that I believe Bertrand Russell was at least reading and wrestling with this chapter more than a lot of Christians that I've met. I do not believe he's right but I do admire the fact that he's actually reading the text and wrestling with what it says and saying, you've got to make sense of this. You've got to feel the weight of this and make sense of it. It, it means something. And if it means what it's saying on, fa- on face value, well then, it's wrong. We will look more in weeks to come since, uh, about all that since Jesus mentions this much later in the chapter, but I want you to at least recognize what's actually being said by our Lord Jesus when you read the entire chapter. Today, however, we're going to focus on the first few verses where Jesus declares that the beautiful structures that his disciples are pointing out to him will be destroyed. Let's pray before we go into that. Father, I want to ask that you would please help us now as we look into your word to focus on it. I pray, Lord, that you would please help us to understand the truths within these four verses, to understand why the temple was destroyed and what that means now. Lord, I pray that you would apply your eternal truths to our hearts. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Though his disciples, as Jewish men, would have seen this temple and those buildings hundreds of times in their lifetime, 
they were still amazed at how magnificent, beautiful, and in their words, wonderful, the temple and the other buildings were. This was not Solomon's temple, by the way. That temple had been destroyed by who? The Babylonians. When they came in, as was prophesied they would, if the people of God kept rebelling, kept sinning against him, and they did, and so God kept his word. They invaded them, they captured them, took them away, and destroyed the temple. This was not that temple. This was what's been called Herod's temple. Herod had begun rebuilding and improving this temple about 50 years before our text takes place. So about 50 years before this conversation is being having with Jesus Christ is when Herod started expanding it. Herod actually expanded the temple mount so that it was, as you see in the picture there, it was, it was really the focal point of the entire city of Jerusalem. You can see that, right? I mean, your eyes are immediately drawn to the temple area. He expanded the temple mount to cover an area that was so large. It was roughly five football fields by three football fields. 30, roughly 35 acres there on the Temple Mount. 35 acres. It was enormous what Herod had done to it, how he expanded everything, how he built everything up and beautified everything. One of the foundation stones, just one of them, that's been recorded, was uh, 45 feet long by 11 feet high and 12 feet thick. 45 feet long, one stone. 12 feet thick, one stone. Some of the stones were that big that were the foundation stones. Some ancient historians said that the temple of Herod looked like a marble, a mountain of marble decorated with gold. A mountain of marble decorated with gold. When you looked up at the Temple Mount, that's what it looked like to some of the Jewish historians that had recorded it at that time who had seen it. So here, once again, Jesus' followers, they're in awe, they're in wonder at how magnificent these buildings are. There, were, there was truly nothing like it on earth. There, there wasn't. The, just the temple itself was roughly 16 stories Hi, you've been to the beach, I'm sure. You've stayed at a condo. You know, when you go out on the beach and you, you, you turn back around to look at the buildings, you see all the balconies, right? Sixteen of those high. That's how tall just the temple was. Just a magnificent structure. Well, Jesus was also looking at the exact same buildings they were They were seeing the buildings in the present. Jesus was able to see all those buildings in the future. He says to them, not one stone will be left here upon another. They will all be thrown down. Jesus has been called prophet, priest, and king. He was taking up the mantle of prophet at this point and prophesying rightly and truly and accurately about what would take place in the future. 
He begins to say this in verse 2. <clears throat> Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone here left upon another. That will not be thrown down. I want, to put your, I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of these Jewish men, these 12 followers of Jesus Christ. You've just been staring in wonder, looking and admiring not only the beauty of everything, but also with a reverent heart, you've been led to worship God being among the temple of God, which is what it was built for. It was supposed to lead you in worship. That was the place where you met with the Lord. You brought your sacrifices there, and worship of him was to happen there. It was supposed to. So you're admiring everything. Your heart's filled up with worship. You've just been in that place once again, that place that you would have had memories of a child going to every Passover and all the other festivals that required a visit to Jerusalem. And then Jesus says this to you, that now these structures, even this holy structure, is going to be destroyed. What would have gone through your mind? Well, first of all, what would have gone through your mind is the fact that this man who's saying this to you, Jesus himself, who's proven himself to not only be reliable to you in the three and a half years that you've known him as one of his followers, but he's also proven himself to be righteous, the son of God, with no deceit in his mouth. So you would immediately say and think and know, this is really going to happen. Next, when he firmly states that everything you're looking at is going to be torn down, you would be shaken because the fact of what that really means for you as a Jew, as a Jew, you would immediately be thinking through the ramification of what all this would mean. You would remember reading in the Holy Scriptures the last time this happened, it was because of God's judgment. You would also think about the fact that it was because they had rejected the Lord and his ways. So you can only imagine what fear and dread and shock must have been racing through their minds as they made their descent from the Temple Mount then up to the Mount of Olives because that's where what's said next takes place. Once they arrived there on the Mount of Olives, Four of them get together and ask Jesus about this prediction. And it's their questions to him that actually prompt the, the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter would not have happened had they not have asked these questions because the rest of the chapter is a response to these two questions that they're going to ask. Verses 3 and 4. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus does answer their questions, and we'll discuss those in the weeks to come. But I want to make note of the fact that Jesus prophesied correctly. 
he prophesied accurately. The Jewish historian named Josephus, perhaps you've heard of him, he lived during that time, and he lived to see what happened during those days. He lived to see the destruction of the temple, and he wrote about it in great detail. He recorded the events that became that happened before it, when Rome was approaching and laying siege to it. But before that even happened, he was a general during the Jewish wars. And the town that he was living in at that time, word has it, if this is accurate, everyone in that town died except for him. And he was captured by the Romans. Now because of his great valor and because of his great knowledge, he became a friend of the Roman general named Titus who later became emperor. And it was this same Titus who ended up taking over the command. It was, it was handed to him. I don't mean he, he took over his father, but he was given command to invade Palestine by his father. And while Josephus was imprisoned by the Romans, he and Titus became friends. And Titus allowed Josephus to uh, plead with the people in Jerusalem to surrender. Because why? What had happened? Well, the Jewish wars were on and Rome comes to Jerusalem. And as you saw from the pictures, it wasn't just an open city. It didn't have open borders. It had walls big, thick walls all around it. Rome could not just march in and take over and invade and say, get out. No, the Jews had gone inside those walls and barricaded themselves against this army. And it was a pretty significant place to be. It was substantial. That's why Rome had to lay siege against it for months. Josephus was allowed to go speak to his fellow Jews within the walls, behind the walls, and he pleaded with them. He, not as a traitor, but because he wasn't viewed as a traitor. He was still viewed as a, a fellow Jew, because he was. He begged the people, please surrender. Rome is going to come in and kill all of you. But you know what also scared him? Maybe even, the way he wrote, it seems to make it sound like this may have even been more important to him than all the lives in there, which I don't know. But he was concerned about two things, the lives of all the Jews, but he knew that they were also going to destroy the holy temple. So he begged the people within, please surrender they will destroy you. They'll destroy everything, including our holy temple. Well, of course, they didn't surrender. And Rome laid siege against them for months. There's a famous painting. I don't have a picture of it, but there's a famous painting of all these Romans standing on a hill. And in the background, you can see Jerusalem on fire, burning 
being destroyed. Because it happened just as Jesus said it would. Titus was successful in destroying the city, the temple, the people. There was even a monument that was erected in his honor to commemorate the event. It's called the the Arch of Titus. It's in Rome to this day. It was erected in the year 81 AD. So just 11 years after this took place, they honor Titus by erecting this arch to him. On the arch, there are many inscriptions, but there's one picture especially that even depicts the Romans carrying away articles from the temple. You see in this picture here? They are carrying away that seven-pronged candlestick that is a menorah, that is a Jewish menorah. So this has been um, immortalized now since 81 AD, them celebrating the destruction of Jerusalem and, and carrying out the wonderful things from within the temple. Did you know that when Israel became a, a nation again, just, what, 50 or 60 years ago, they used this exact inscription to recreate a menorah for themselves. This exact one in Rome. The measurements, how it looks and everything. They used this exact one because that's the best representation they had of what it would have looked like back then during Herod's time, during Jesus' time. So yes, the temple of God was destroyed Yes, it was destroyed by the enemies of God, just as Jesus said it would be. Yes, they celebrated their victory in overthrowing the temple and carrying away its goods. As you recall from weeks ago, the cursing of the fig tree was a visual parable that Jesus gave when he entered Jerusalem. The fig tree was... Bearing leaves, but not bearing fruit. Fig tree, as we learned, if it's bearing leaves, it will also be at least starting to bear fruit. So this fig tree was promising something. Look, I have fruit, but actually delivering nothing because upon inspection, it was fruitless. And we remember that the fig tree represented the present state of Israel. Promising one thing, but upon inspection was producing nothing. Had the appearance of godliness, but upon Jesus' inspection of the godly ones there, they were fruitless. Jesus therefore cursed the fig tree, and it later withered up, died, and never grew again. The destruction of the temple was not only God's judgment on the nation of Israel for rejecting his son, just as they had rejected God the Father in the past, it was also to show the death of an old system. I want to say that again. The destruction of the temple was not only God's judgment on the nation of Israel for rejecting the Son of God, it was also to clearly show the death of an old system. The second song that we sang uh, earlier, we talked about the, the tearing of the veil right? 
Keep that in mind for one moment. The fact that this temple is destroyed, what does that mean now? What does it mean now? Well, it means that even modern-day Jews cannot obey the Old Testament laws. It's not possible anymore. Why? Well, the Old Testament required temple worship, temple sacrifices, and even celebration of certain feasts at the temple. It's impossible to obey those now. Impossible. The old system is not even able to be fulfilled anymore. The tearing down, not the tearing down, rather, the tearing of the veil that we actually sang about in our second song, if you remember, I saw that, I caught that reference. I was like, we're going to talk about that. The tearing of the veil when Jesus died was the beginning of the visual, the, the visible change in the way man would now approach his God. That was when it started. The death of Christ started this. The tearing of the veil showed things are changing. Man will approach God differently now. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD was God's final way of showing that man no longer approaches God through animal sacrifices made at a temple, but how? Only through the once-for-all sacrifice of his dear son, correct? Listen to Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He references there the temple. Talks about copies of the true things holy places made with hands, that's a reference to the temple. And he's saying, Christ, he's a better sacrifice than anything that happens at the temple, ever. You don't need to go there repeatedly, year after year, with the help of a high priest anymore. He's given the once-for-all sacrifice, okay? What else? Well, the temple is the place where the presence of the Lord dwells, Correct? Under the new covenant, the scripture tells us that we are that temple. Remember that beautiful temple? That temple where even Jews that had seen it a hundred times still look at it and they say, wow, just wow. Look how wonderful, amazing. It just never gets old. That temple, that's us. That's us. Second Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then listen to Ephesians 2. 19 through 22, Ephesians 2, 
19 through 22. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. And as I'm even saying those words, I'm just thinking, I know this is true. I know that's true what I'm saying. But I also understand what the temple meant and what the temple was for and how holy and special it was and all the regulations that went along with it to make sure that worship happened rightly in that place. It was very holy. Why? Namely because God was there. And now, in the New Testament, I'm told that I'm that temple. That weight needs to fall on us, doesn't it? We are to be a holy people because the Lord dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's why, that's one reason why when you sin, You feel dirty, don't you? I do. That's why I like to keep, and I have to keep, short accounts with God. I have to confess quickly because I can't stand that filthy feeling of my old self, the old way. Just like Paul says, what does the temple of God have to do with the temple of idols? I understand when the sin enters, when I I sin, I say, this doesn't belong here. This is not supposed to be in this temple. And I repent. I go quickly to him. I want to encourage you to do the same. Are you going to sin? Yes. You will feel hatred for that sin if your conscience hasn't been so seared to the point where you can sin and it doesn't really even bother you. If it has been, if it has been, you know it, then I want you to ask God to help you and forgive you and change you and shake you. Let me also say this. Look at me. Look at me, okay, everyone? If you keep doing the same things, you're going to keep getting the same results. If you've been struggling with a certain sin, not only for months, but for years, if you keep doing the same things, you're going to keep getting the same results. You're the holy temple of God. And he wants you to worship him rightly. Your sin will hinder your worship of him. Your sin will hinder your closeness to him. Go hard after it. And I'm telling you, it's going to take maybe more effort than you've been giving towards it. And I want to also tell you, I'm here to help you as your pastor. I will not punch you in the nose if you come to me and say I do bad things I will say join the fallen humanity club (laughs) and I'm happy to help you because what I have found when I'm open about 
some struggle that I'm having, you know what I usually find from fellow Christians? This phrase, I struggle with that too. And I realize I'm not just walking around with a big L on my forehead. So is it everyone else. And so, as your pastor, let me encourage you to be the holy temple of God and to double down on your sin and to go hard after it. Because if you're the temple, then you're supposed to be looked upon as wonderful, according to the disciples. Look at these wonderful buildings, right? A beautiful place where worship can happen. The earthly temple was torn down, but the living temple, people of God, are being built up into the temple of God by the Spirit of God, we're told in Ephesians. We're being built up into the temple of God. How? By the Spirit of God. Call upon Him for help, and He'll build you up into that temple. Amen? And that temple will never be torn down. Jesus says, He who lives and believes in me will never die. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the fact that you've given us your word, the fact that you've given us your dear son, who tells us the truth about what is to come, who tells us the truth about life, death, all things that make for godliness. And Lord, I pray that we would be that living temple, holy living stones being built up into this dwelling place of God, because your spirit does dwell within us. I pray that he would find holiness and that you would help us to live holy lives according to your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.